What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Today's guest is Julie Carrick-Dalton, author of Waiting for the Night Song, a novel that deals with climate change. Coincidentally, it's Endangered Species Day, when all too many animals that we love and may take for granted risk extinction. This book, Waiting for the Night Song, published by Forge, is about the enduring bond of childhood friendship, the close relationship between us and the natural world, and the implications of keeping lifelong secrets. Welcome, Julie. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Diana. So I'm so happy to be here with you today. Uh, and where are you speaking to us from? It's always interesting to know where you're sitting. I am in Boston right now. The weather is great. Ah, okay. So spring, spring in Boston. And um, is that where you've been during COVID shelter? Yes, I have. I, I, I divide my time between Boston and New Hampshire where I run a farm. So I've been bouncing back and forth. Uh-huh. And this is the organic farm that you own and, and run. And what's growing there in this season? Um, I'm just getting ready to plant. We have a you know reasonably short um, growing season in New Hampshire, so I'm getting ready to put corn and potatoes and all sorts of vegetables and greens and herbs in the ground. Great. That sounds wonderful. It's also um, harkens back to we meet Katie, the protagonist of Waiting for the Night Song, a girl with curly red hair and her then and now. Then is that summer of her adolescence and present day now when she works as an entomologist, a person who studies insects, uh, of which there are over 800,000 species, I learned. Then <laughs> in her, that summer, and I feel, I feel you in this with your, with your farm, um, then there's a, a really immersive quality to the book. We're present with Katie in the forest, on the lake. It's so clean she can taste it. Picking blueberries with her friend Daniela. Below foot, the pine needles, the rock shells. And then Katie, as an entomologist, um, searching for the cause of droughts, beetles, fires, wildfires, and all kinds of environmental implications that we're experiencing. These characters' lives intersect with the environment in a big way. And I wondered, as a lover of nature and a writer, what responsibility you feel you have to highlight the issues of climate change? That's an interesting question. And when you ask about responsibility, when I first started writing the book, it was really just a story. It started with a story about two young girls. And um, as I as I developed the plot um, that the, these when when the girls are young when they're eleven and twelve they witness um, a traumatic event and choose to cover it up and that provides like the impetus for, like the whole story gets started from that point and when mm-hmm. I wanted to bring her home I was thinking about the ways when she's an adult and has to come home to face up to this decision she made as a child how would home be different. Like what would look different in our environment, in our communities, if, after having been away for a long time? So I was doing some research, and my growing region in New Hampshire, the summer temperatures have gone up by four degrees over the past dec- or, I'm sorry, century, wow. which is pretty shocking. And, it, and I know four, and that's disproportionate to most of the country. And it was a slow, steady increase. So it wasn't like a shocking thing that happened. No one's running around in New Hampshire waving their arms, screaming climate change which to me is really interesting because it's been this slow change. And what it's meant is our growing season is 22 days longer than it was 100 years ago. And as, you know, as a farm owner, that's a big deal. And it makes you reevaluate what crops you grow, what grew 100 years ago, how does it affect our trees, our forests. Because I also, I manage 92 acres of um, forest land. And so for me, 
it wasn't a choice. To, like, I wasn't consciously thinking, what's my responsibility? I was building my farm during the exact same years I wrote the book. And so I was a lot of days digging in the dirt, like had it under my fingernails and in my hair and, um, and then going home and writing. So the, the imagery of the book really is the imagery of my farm and my agricultural research on my growing area really presented itself in the book. So it wasn't a conscious decision. It just was a part of the life I was living. So it ended up in my book. I think at almost a molecular level, um, the land becomes a part of you and you experience a place. Um, it, It becomes almost organically a part of you. I mean, home home is one of the operative concepts in the book. Katie grows up uh, on the hook uh, near a lake in New Hampshire, a small town. Um, and it's, it's really something that she feels ambivalent about, as most adolescents do, <laughs> that yearn to get away, mm-hmm. um, particularly because, as you say, she, she witnessed something as uh, an 11-year-old that was traumatic um, and that stayed with her and that caused her to want to flee. But there's something very compelling about being called home and the forest that connects the two friends, Katie and Daniela, is almost like a third being, right? A, a kind of a, a, connective, a connective tissue. How was it to describe the forest as you wrote it? I mean, does it resonate with you now from your childhood? Yes, very much. So I did not grow up in New Hampshire. So the actual trees and the imagery I'm describing are New Hampshire, but a lot of the emotional component um, is based on my childhood growing up in Maryland. Um, You know, I lived in a kind of rural area and I had one of those, you know, typical 70s and 80s kid, you know, upbringings where I would disappear at breakfast and run around in the woods with my friends all day and show up for home for dinner. And we just played, we had a played all sorts of games. I used to write a lot of fan fiction scripts for silly TV shows when I was a kid. I would write these scripts out for Charlie's Angels and Mork and Mindy and um, uh-huh. and Wonder Woman, and we would act them out in the forest. And it was like our setting, it was our backdrop for our world. You know, this tree would become a building and this one would be, you know, a, an elevator. Or we would just come up with these imaginative ways to incorporate the forest into our world. And I feel that Katie, the character in my book, had that same sensibility that the the trees were her friends. They were um, like sentient beings to her in a lot of ways. And I felt like that um, that Katie, when she was during her adolescent years, when she was resisting coming home, it was sort of a battle to fight the draw to come home. And as an adult, she um, even I like the way you said it on a molecular level that she feels drawn home. And I, there's a, a passage in the book where. I describe how when she returns home and she goes swimming one morning and when she goes underwater, she recognizes the water and she kind of ruminates on this idea that um, there are particles suspended in this water that were eroded from the granite mountains all around her that, you know, washed into the lake by the, you know, waterways coming down the mountain and that she as a child ingested this water and therefore those the particles of these granite mountains are settled into her cells of her body. And to me, it's a really compelling way to look at the way the environment moves through us, the same way we move through the environment, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, It does become cellular. And I think that it's also a way in which we become personally involved and engaged at a level that we wouldn't ordinarily if we hadn't experienced nature intently as intensely as a child. As you say, it formed an entire world um, for Katie and for you growing up. Um, I think it's really, really interesting, too, that this world, it, it liberated them. It liberated you in a way to play but it also has the ability to contain secrets. And the story begins with a secret. Um, there's a rowboat that that comes, it's drifting, and it comes towards Katie's pier. She takes a hold of it and she seizes upon it because, well, who wouldn't? It's the most fun thing you could imagine mm-hmm. as a kid. And um, But it's not hers. And she takes it and she secrets it away in, among the rocks where no one can really see it. Um, And so I think that sort of sets the tone that secrets, they do just happen. Not all of them are bad or good. Some of them are just kind of neutral. 
Um, but there is the question of lifelong secrets in your book, and one of them concerns the undocumented immigrant family, the Garcias, who live in the town, Maplecrest, and who are beloved because they run the hardware store, and um, but they need a kind of tacit protection because they are in America secretly. They are, they are undocumented. I wondered if you felt, and this is this is like a question that you shouldn't really have to be responsible for answering, but I'm, I'm just <laughs> curious because you, you kind of went there, but do you think secrets have uh, an inherent ethicality? Are some secrets actually positive in the way they protect us? I mean, secrets get a bad rap now. You know, we're supposed to take the lid of all secrets. I, I like the way you framed that. Um, yeah, so I think that all the characters are carrying secrets, including the Garcias, but everybody in this book is holding on to some piece of information that other people don't know. And I, what I, I really love all my characters, even the ones that, you know, maybe have some questionable motives. I really feel like they all believe in the moment that they're making a good choice when they choose to cover something up or make a questionable decision. And in the case of the Garcias, um, you know, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but when you trace their history back, which it unfolds in the book, the, um, the reasons that they came to the United States were really important and very central to the story. And they're actually very central to the climate themes in my story. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, I, I draw some lines in my book back to U.S. intervention in El Salvador um, in the 80s and how we, um, as we being the United States, um, you know, our intervention impacted their agriculture, land use, and in really dramatic ways that are still, still like causing so much pain in, in that region. And a lot of people, for reasons of U.S. intervention, left um, Central America to come to the United States. And it's continuing because our intervention caused um, a lot of deforestation, like like incredible amounts of forest were torn down because of U.S. agricultural practices in Central America, which led to land erosion, soil being washed away, um, you know, agricultural crisis, poverty, violence, all these things. And they ended up back in the United States. And so I feel like it's kind of a coming full circle, and in a way, isn't it all our all of our secrets that we you know? In some way, are we complicit in this secret because we set it in motion? Mm-hmm. And here we are with COVID um, as a result of deforestation and loss of habitat. I mean, I think that it's fascinating to me that you talk about starting the story as the personal one where, you know, Katie it's Katie and uh, Daniela are implicit in witnessing um, what is a crime. And um, it's really, to me, then much more uh, a, a personally felt book than it is a didactic book. Yes, there's a lot of exploration into the history and the interactions that you just described in El Salvador, but it's by no means um, a political diatribe. There's really a lot of humanity. I do want to give listeners, though, a uh, background for your career. Um, As a Boston-based journalist, Julie Carrick Dalton has published more than a thousand articles in the Boston Globe, Electric Literature, Business Week, The Hollywood Reporter, and other publications. She contributes to the Chicago Review of Books, Dead Darlings, Writers Unboxed, and the Grub Street Writers Blocks. Blogs. A Tin House alum, Dalton was a finalist in the Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Awards Program, and she holds a Master's in Literature and Creative Writing from Harvard Extension School. You say you grew up in Maryland and on a military base in Germany. As an adult, you bounced around from Seattle to Dallas to Virginia before finding your true home in Boston, where you've lived for more than 20 years. Mom to four kids and two dogs, you also own and operate the 100-acre organic farm you mentioned in rural New Hampshire, and and it's the backdrop for Waiting for the Night Song, your debut novel. And there's a second novel, The Last Beekeeper, that's going to be released in 2022. So... We can learn more about that at your website, juliecarrickdalton.com. I, I wondered about the insider-outsider mentality. You know, we mentioned the Garcias. 
um, immigrants and their honest, very honest motives for coming here. But there's still the outsider status. And even little Katie, with her flame red curls and her, I would say, shyness or maybe her feelings of um, she's an only child. She's, um, she's quite a loner by necessity. She has a dog, Friar. But there's Daniela, who is, who is a member of the Garcia family, and she's the more confident one. She's the more brave one. Um, but she ends up having a heart, too. And that's really um, thankful because in the beginning, I wasn't, I wasn't too sure about that. I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about how witnessing this crime impacted Katie's life. And what were some of the offshoots from that in the way you developed her character? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a complicated question because I really wrestled with that as I was writing it. It wasn't something that I knew what the ramifications were going to be for her when I started out the story. So I think that there's an obvious, she carries some guilt because as a child, what I really liked about the story is that this thing, that this crime that they choose to cover up, um, at the time that they're making this decision, it seems like the right thing to do. And to an 11 and 12-year-old girl's, um, this decision seems like that there's logic to it and it seems like the only safe thing to do. And as adults, looking back, they may not feel the same way about it, but they have to live with this decision they made as children. And I think that that's kind of a universal feeling in a lot of people having to live with decisions that we made in a, 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 in a different chapter in our life. Like, are we still the same person who made that decision? And do we still bear the guilt of that decision? Um, and, you know, she, I think Katie bears responsibility because she's carrying more of the secret than Danielle knows she is. Danielle doesn't know a full part of the story. So Katie's bearing a lot of not just um, guilt and maybe shame, but also uh, bearing responsibility for other people. Like she knows if she, if she comes forward, there is, she's putting someone else in jeopardy. So there's not a clear right or wrong in this situation. And I think there's a lot of cases in the story where people make decisions where there isn't an obvious right or wrong. There seems to be a right and a wrong on both both sides. And so as Katie grows up, I think she's carrying this weight around with her. And I referenced several times and she thinks of it kind of as a stone in her stomach that inside of her that she kind of tucked away and tried to hide and not look at this shame and try to live with it because the... Um, you know, she feels like it's her only choice to carry this burden. And other characters in the story are also carrying these secrets that they all, for different reasons, believe they're doing it for a good cause or a good reason or at least a partially good reason. So I didn't want anybody to come out looking like a hero, a savior, or a villain. Like, they're all complicated, um, and they're all, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do the best they can. It's really uh, sophisticated writing as a result, and it's really much more fascinating writing as a result. Interestingly, Katie also collects stones that she's building a cairn in her house, and I think that's somehow symbolic. We actually have to pause for a commercial break now, but we'll come back and we'll be speaking with Julie Carrick Dalton about her fascinating book, Waiting for the Night Song. Don't go away, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email 
to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Julie Carrick Dalton, the author of Waiting for the Night Song, a compelling new novel that um, does talk about the impact of climate change, but also on our home earth, but also an internal home, a, a home that we feel inside. Um, maybe a spiritual home, a place that we can never be rid of, even if we tried. Um, It's so wonderful speaking with you, Julie. I wondered when you wrote this book, what the significance to you was of um, both summertime and the time of Katie and Daniela's life, adolescence. What are the special aspects of those times for you uh, as a writer? Uh, I I love exploring the world of young girls. The, Daniela, uh, Katie and her best friend Daniela are 11 and 12 in that summer. And I think that's a really magical time in a young girl's life because you're you're not quite, you know, you're not a teenager yet, but you feel like you're a little older than the little kids. And you can see the world from both sides of the fence, depending on the day you're a little kid, but you're like craving to be an adult and to be responsible. And so in the story... Katie and Daniela are, um, their parents work during the day, and so they're on their own at home. And it's Katie's first summer. Their parents have let her stay home alone while they go to work. And she and Daniela will hang out and have all these um, very innocent, idyllic adventures. They get into some mischief. Um, you know, and they're being a little bit naughty, but, you know, they, they're going out on a rowboat that they're not supposed to go out on. And um, But there's this element of, like, pushing boundaries that I think kids at that age feel compelled to push and to, you know, what is it going to be like to be a teenager or an adult? And I want responsibility. And so they're pushing these boundaries and they're doing it out in nature, which for me is a very comfortable place to write because that's the child I was. I was out in the woods. I was out playing, um, you know, maybe getting into a little mischief. And it feels like a great place for kids that age to explore who they are and to imagine adventures. And it was really based on a friendship I had at that age. I had a friend who, um, you know, I, I, am the, I am the Katie in this equation, and I had a friend named Stephanie who was a little older, a little cooler than me, and we just kind of ran wild in the summer, and the, the uh, dynamics between the two girls is very much based on the friendship I had with this friend Stephanie growing up. Not the content or the plot, but the, the way we were together, the way we talked together, and a lot of times when I was writing, I would imagine, like, what would I have said to Stephanie if this happened, or how would Stephanie have reacted in this situation? So the relationship is really, for me, kind of a, a lovely way to reminisce on a friendship that mattered a lot to me when I was that age. Mm-hmm. Like kind of a retrieval. I, I think also, I mean, people would be, it would be rev- revelatory now to find out um, as a kid that your parents let you run free and you were roaming all over the place and having adventures because I think kids' time is a lot more programmed now and there's so much a sense of, well, you know, you, you can't go too far because this and that might happen and you kind of grow up with a different sensation that the world might not be a safe place where, you know, for better or worse, we ended up, I, I had, a, a sh- I shared in really the, the best possible way, um, a lot of the sense of liberation of these girls. Um, and I, I grew up, you know, also on, in summers on the Chesapeake Bay. And I totally related to this sense of liberation, you know, almost shoving off in the dinghy, you could just feel yourself going away from land, going away from parents, um, yeah, going away from authority, um, and and kind of, yeah, pushing an exploratory boundary, um, an edge that maybe kids don't really have so much anymore. Um, Do you see that? I do, yeah. I have four kids myself, and I, I regret that they never had that level of freedom. I mean, we spend a lot of time outside. We live on a lake. Um, the farm is on a lake in New Hampshire, and they spend a lot of time in, in the water. I mean, they they know those woods. They know that lake that I'm describing, but they didn't know it with the freedom that Katie had. Um, I, there were not days when I let my kids go off at, at breakfast, and I didn't see them till dinner that wasn't part of the way people raise kids these days and and I do I do regret that for for the on 
their behalf that they didn't have it. They had a level of freedom, but it was different than mine. And, um, and I, I think that they, they had more organized activities than I did as a kid. I think that's pretty typical. I was raised in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I don't think that there are many kids today that experience that, at least not, you know, kids who live in, you know, um, suburban settings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that um, we keep as a kind of a little secret, like a secret um, regret that they don't experience because, you know, it's it's so it's so impossible to explain those feelings of running free. And yet, um, I think it's I think it's very foundational. Um, I wondered about also the sense of nerdiness. Um, you know, Katie is she's she is kind of scientific in her um, methodology of looking at things and collecting things and preserving things. And, um, and I think, you know, you, you sort of also describe your, yourself as the Katie. I, I actually didn't realize uh, until I read your book that being flame-haired, um, and you, you dedicate the book to your grandmother who was also flame-haired. I mean, now when we say a ginger, it's like, wow, that's a really cool thing. But I, I take it that being <laughs> flame-haired was that was something different then, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up. You know, my hair is um, isn't as flaming red as I described Katie's, but I do have red hair, and it is not something that we, you know, that people didn't say that with with love <laughs> when I was growing up necessarily. But um, for for Katie, you know, I describe her skin as she feels her skin is translucent and she can see, you know, the veins under her skin and the freckles on her skin. And that's something I was always very aware of as a child. And um, I definitely had that nerdy, you know, that nerdy side to me. Um, I think we had, a, me and a couple kids in my neighborhood formed a science club when we were in elementary school. And I thought it was going to be the hottest thing. And it was just me and these two boys. Nobody else showed up. So I guess that was where I, I discovered I was a nerd in all the best ways um, because it followed me. Like I'm still very, I, I went to college as a biochemistry major and I ended up graduating with a journalism degree, but not because I didn't love science, it's because I loved telling stories. And I realized that I could share other people's stories as a journalist, but this, my love for science, it never went away. I just read on my own. I ended up you know buying a farm and having to study agriculture on my own, and then I ended up going back to school and got a certificate in uh, sustainable agriculture from Tufts University here in Boston. Uh And so I feel like I've always been a scientist storyteller in some capacity. Um, And that that little kid nerdiness never really went away. The scientist storyteller is going to be an ever increasing, increasingly important role, I think, because without these personal stories, um, science doesn't necessarily come alive in a way uh, that it does when you meet people, you know, who are living it. And I think that that's really one of the gifts of this book, Waiting for the Night Song. Um, You also talk about kind of signs from nature, the cloud the sun is blocked by the cloud, the wind shifts, um, there are um, feelings of turbulence in the water. Um, and there's a lot of interconnectivity uh, with nature. I wonder if you actually feel that um, and whether you think that sort of at a, um, you know, at a quantum physics level, <laughs> do, do you feel mm-hmm. that we are interrelated um, with the natural world in ways that we're not quite aware of? I do. I think that we have this, I think it's a particularly, particularly in you know, um, the United States and North America, we are very like, self-centered and focused on what, how everything affects us. But, you know, we're just one of, like, millions of species on this planet. We happen to have the most impact on it. But we're just, you know, in the grand scheme of things, are we any more important than a beetle or a songbird that's going endangered? You know, we're just one species on this rapidly spinning planet. And I think when we think about it in in that context, um, it it, it makes me feel... um, that we should be considering all parts of nature, not just the parts that affect us. And somebody in an interview asked me, there's a beetle that you had referenced earlier that uh, Katie is an entomologist, and she's trying to prove that this invasive beetle has moved into the forest, which could have implications of you know killing off trees and a potential forest fire. And somebody asked me about the beetle and called it like her villain or, or the villain or her nemesis that she's trying to track down. And I said, no, 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 the beetle is not the villain. The beetle is just another part of nature 
that's trying to survive. It's trying to find a nice neighborhood to raise kids in, a place with food and it's you know, mm-hmm. safe to have babies in, just like we all are. And so the beetle that's, you know, the invasive beetle has just as much, you know, claim to the land as we do, um, which I think is a, a way we don't generally look at nature. We think of it in context of controlling it or manipulating it or how is it working for us or against us when really we should be just a, a part of this big evolving you know, ecosystem and the um, the songbird, the book title uh, Waiting for the Night Song refers to a songbird and it's a bird that's endangered. So we have this flux of species moving in, species moving out, species fighting to hold their ground um, on this little tiny piece of land in this little town in the mountains of New Hampshire. Um, so I feel like we are all living in closer connection to our environment than we acknowledge, than we realize on a day-to-day basis. But I think that we should maybe always be thinking about it as like, we don't own nature. Like this isn't here Mm -hmm. for our enjoyment. We're part of it. Mm -hmm. Well, many indigenous tribes um, found it completely ludicrous that the white man um, owned land. Like how can you own land? It's like owning the sky or something like that's, it's another element. It's something that we tend and, and it's not ours to uh, bend our will. I I also love that the, um, you know, the emblem is this bird. I'm sorry to hear that it's endangered, but I mean, it, it, it also requires listening, right? Listening, to nature because the beetle after all is only a signal that's trying to communicate to say wait a minute if I'm in your presence that's a signal to you if you choose to pay attention um, that these odd you know migrations are, are occurring and it's going to impact you through wildfires through all kinds of things that have become regular terrors of of our existence, but you know, until you go back to the micro, um, you kind of you you miss the signals, right? You 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 miss the subtext of of what's going on. You talk about um, Katie and her desire to sometimes disappear, kind of disappear in the woods, disappear as an entomologist up in the trees, looking at looking for these beetles. Um, and I wondered about that feeling of disappearing and appearing, you know, wanting to stake a claim as a scientist for her university findings and wanting to disappear in nature. Is that also a dynamic that you relate to? Um, and is it one that you'll continue to reveal in your further writing? Nobody has ever asked me that question. Thank you. Um, I, I do feel like Katie wants her her science and her research to be her um, what she leaves in this world. You know her her work, and um, she doesn't want to be out in front of things when there's a, a, um, a, a um, this thing that happens where another scientist in the story creates a hashtag with Katie's name in it that has to do with this research. And she's kind of mortified because that is not, she never wanted to be, you know, the poster child for a movement. She just wanted to be, she just wants to take, you know, find this insect and understand this insect. And she's also longing for this little songbird that nobody else is missing. It's a very nondescript, it's a real bird. It's called the Bicknell's thrush. Mm-hmm. And it's leaving the New Hampshire forest because its its habitat in the Caribbean is being destroyed. Um, there is being de- there deforestation and hurricanes in the Caribbean. Um, mean when it migrates south in the winter, it's dying because its habitat is disappearing. So it comes back every year in smaller numbers. But it's such a this teeny tiny gray bird, and nobody's up in arms. It's not like we're talking about you know bears or moose or you know something really noticeable. But Katie notices, and so I feel like she. Um, doesn't want to be seen. I don't think I feel that way necessarily. That's not, um, I don't feel like I have that desire to disappear into nature, but I do love to talk about it. I love to bring other people into the conversation about nature. So that is, I think there's a whole lot of me in Katie, but I don't think we share that quality. Mm -hmm. Well, the anonymity, I also linked somehow to her witnessing the crime and being traumatized by it because part of you does want to disappear, right? She talks about it. She, she wants to kind of flee herself because she's, she's seen something horrific. And this ability to disappear is really, we don't have it right now because we can't disappear into a crowd. 
you know, until COVID is really contained, we, we, we're just constantly present. And sometimes there is that craving of, you know, we're going to just rub shoulders with people and disappear into a noisy bar or, you know, a, a concert hall or, you know, it's an outdoor concert or something where you feel like you lose yourself into, a, into something greater. I, I, I thought that also her desire to make connection um, with the summer boy um, it was, well, it's part of her, she needs to reach out of her loneliness. Um, and they start quite a lovely communication, she and the summer boy. Do you think that trust is thematic in your book? She doesn't really know him. She's not too sure about Danielle. She's not real sure about herself sometimes. Is trusting yourself, trusting people, and the question of whether you should trust people, is that something that occurred to you as you were writing these characters? I don't think it was something that I was consciously thinking about, but I do think that the characters, um, you know, as we talked about all these secrets that they're all carrying, and, you know, when, when do you trust someone with your biggest secrets? There's a scene in the book where... Katie and Daniela swap their biggest secrets and their, their, their big, you know, their important secrets that they're sharing and, and that they are having to carry each other's secrets from there on. And so when you give someone something that's really important to you, you're, you're trusting them to, to hold that close. And I think that in, in the, the relationship with the, the summer kid, when Katie is reaching out to him and she's sharing the books that she loves, which is something that is meaningful to her. Like she's sharing some, a treasured object with this boy. She leaves these books on his pier and it becomes a vehicle for communication between these two kids who don't really know each other, but that she's sharing something about herself. When she chooses the book she's giving him, that was me choosing the books that I loved as a child and me choosing to share them with you. That I think that, you know, when you share a book with someone, when you recommend a book or you hand someone a book you've already read, there's an element of saying like, I value this book and I hope you do too. And I'm sharing a piece of who I am with you by sharing this book with you. So I loved that that's how their relationship started because it was very difficult for me to narrow down the list of books that the kids shared. I initially had 40 books that I wanted her to deliver to this boy. <laughs> and so the books that are, the titles that I came up with were the books that really shaped me. It was, you know, Swiss Family Robinson and Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, um, The Outsiders, and all these books that made me the, the girl that I was, became the woman and the reader that I am now. So there is, I think there's a lot of trust in, in like exposing yourself to someone. Totally. And there's intimacy involved. Um, we, one hopes that someone's actually going to read a book that you share with someone. I mean, I think that is the most disheartening thing when you find out your, your, your friend has not read your book and furthermore is not returning it. So it's <laughs> there's a lot at stake when you do that. Um, we need to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to continue speaking with Julie Carrick-Dalton, author of Waiting for the Night Song. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers national award-winning books and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm books forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry to learn more visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com a jks communications company streaming live the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Julie Carrick-Dalton, and she um, is uh, a writer whose journalistic uh, past, I would say, Julie, has informed your novel writing because there's such great detail. Um, as a person who's written what I you know, think of now, the reviews have been wonderful and acclaim for this book, Waiting for the Night Song. So you get characterized and you get compared to other authors. I wondered, I mean, and that's annoying because, you know, there's a kind of compartmentalization there. I wondered, um, since you bring together so many elements, the climate change, the adolescence, the summer of um, being and um, coming into the world, I wonder how you would describe yourself as a writer. A lot of um, the writing is very steeped in nature. So I I don't know which one's more important. You know, I think that the you always have to have a compelling story and characters that make someone want to read a book. So I feel like my biggest obligation to my characters, to my story, and to my readers is to create a plot and a story that people want to read. But underneath that, I have things I want to say, too. You know, things about nature and the environment and our responsibility. But that's never going to be the forefront. I don't want ever anybody to ever pick up my book thinking they're going to get a lesson on ecology because that's, it's, that's not that kind of book. But those themes are in there. A lot of people have been using the term climate fiction in the past several years as this emerging category of fiction. Um, and sometimes people, when you say climate fiction, or some people call it cli-fi, like sci-fi, mm. but climate fiction, mm. um, it can, I think a lot of people think of it as a science fiction category, which it can be. There's a lot of you know, disaster fiction that engages climate change. So mm. I think of myself as a contemporary, contemporary writer who, that engages climate change in my literature. Um, and I think first and foremost, I want to do right by my characters. I want to treat them with all the dignity and respect and love I feel for them when I'm writing it. But I, I do have things I want the reader to take away. I'll, I'll give you one little tiny example that a reviewer um, was writing a review of my book right after it came out. And the review started out saying, I'm not interested in climate change and I don't pay attention to the news. So I was really bracing myself for them to hate my book. And then they said, but I really love the characters and I love the plot. And because I cared about the characters, I cared about what happened to them. And by the end of the book, I cared about climate change. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was the best review I've ever had of my book. It was a book blogger. It was not, you know, a national media source. But it meant that someone cared enough about my writing and my stories to go along for the ride and that it changed them in a way. So I think there's a lot of power in fiction to do that, um, that if you write a good story with honest characters people, you know, are invested in, that you can, you know, maybe it's like a Trojan horse. You can maybe slip a message in there somewhere and maybe maybe it'll change someone. I think that that is just a brilliant, um, you know, I think that's the ultimate compliment that reviewer um, posited because I, I do think we care about Katie. I mean, when I found out, you know, she'd been riding this high handle uh, banana seat bicycle over to Daniela's and all around. <laughs> and then I found out, you know, and she said, it's so, it's so queer, it's so nerdy, it's so off. And then you find out later when she's moving her things that she actually had a new bicycle seat. She had one pristine and, you know, would look really um, groovy and cool, but she just kept the old one. Um, there was just something, there's something so endearingly imperfect about her. And I totally agree that Katie hooks you. And I think that the way you... Um, explored and unearthed her character, it really shows, I think, um, a really a, a writerly style, a one there, you know, that is character driven for one thing, and also shifting back and forth between um, nature, the natural world, climate change, and its issues. But hey, if we could just talk about nature without climate change, that'd be nice too, but we can't any longer. It's not feasible. So um, there's, you know, a, there's a writer that I, I can't remember his name, and I'm, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember this now, but who said in order to make us, um, you know, want to save the world, we have to make people care about it first. So you can't just walk into a room and say, climate change, you know, go out in the streets and march. That's not going to motivate anybody to tell them what to do. You need to show them the world and make them fall in love with the world. And that will make people want to save it because they love it. And that's what I want to do with my fiction is I want people to fall in love 
with nature the way I did as a child, the way Katie did. And if that changes someone's attitude about it, that's great. Um, because it's a, you just need to fall in love with it before you can care about it. You do. And um, then it's, you need to connect the dots. You know, it, I think that that's, I think both are very worthwhile. On the subject of, of memory, you know, there is in the book, which I'm so thankful that there wasn't a table of contents. I find those to be pages that could be torn out easily and um, <laughs> and never exist in the first place because you're not referring to them ever. But it also suggests that time is chronological, it's linear, which it's not. You're just constantly going back and forth between your memory of a childhood memory and your present day circumstance and how you got there there and and you know you're you're constantly referring back and forth. So it's also nice that you're shifting back and forth in time throughout this book. In the end, um, you know, you explore the idea of, um, you know, cause and effect, whether we can have regrets, whether we can live with the idea of regret, or do we make peace with what we've done in our lives? And as you say, when we were actually doing the very best we could, Garrett, you know, is the summer boy, and he says, you know, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't happen, and you know, it could go on on an obsessive string. I wonder if you yourself, you know, consciously or unconsciously wanted to deliver that as part of a character aspect that, you know, coming to terms, coming to ground, coming to peace with your life as Katie does. Yeah, I thought about that a lot, very consciously. I This idea that I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, are we the same person that we were you know, 30 years ago, like, am I still responsible for a decision that my childhood self made because I'm such a different person now? And that was a question that constantly came up in my mind for all of these characters. Are they still the same person who made that decision? And there's a a moment where um, Dolores, and that's uh, Daniela's mother, towards the end of the book, she and Katie are having a conversation and I'm probably not going to say this exactly verbatim, but she said something to the effect of, you know, you, you, you aren't, you aren't the person uh, let's see how I can phrase this. You, you aren't your worst mistake. It's what you choose to do after that matters. Like you can't judge someone on one moment in time, even when they do something really awful, but you can judge them on what they do afterwards. And so I think if you look at the characters in my book and trace what they did after these pivotal moments and decisions, that some of them were not good decisions. Even people who are good people make bad decisions, but like what do you do with that knowledge? Do you make good choices for the rest of your life? Do you hide? Do you try to redeem yourself by doing good works in the world? Um, do you try to pretend it never happened? And I think these my characters all handle it a little bit differently and have and find different levels of um, like self-forgiveness, I think, mm-hmm. depending on how they handled it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Katie would be able to come back home I mean, a lot happens in this book, and I'm so glad we've completely (laughs) left everyone in suspense because so much happens (laughs) that we haven't talked about. I really, I'm I'm actually very proud of ourselves, Julie, that we've managed to not allude to the big things, but there are big things that happens, (laughs) yeah, in this book. Um, There are several, actually, Um, but, you know, Julie comes back to this cottage, um, and she is sitting there in... um, Sorry, it's a, in an altered state. Let's put it that way from, from the way it was <laughs> yeah. before. And, and she has come home and she knows that she's going to, um, you know, drop anchor there, that she's going to have her collection of stones. And she has found a kind of an internal home that it doesn't seem possible that she could find that without granting herself a measure of peace for everything that had happened there before. Is that true, do you think? I do, and I think that we are hardest on ourselves. I think we, in in most cases in life, I think we're probably, it's easier to forgive someone else who's harmed us than for us to forgive ourselves for harming someone else, if that that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like, I think that we hold ourselves maybe to a higher standard than we do to other people in a lot of Mm -hmm. cases. 
And so to be able, I think for Katie to be able to visualize a future is an important step for her because in, she's, you know, like we, you had mentioned earlier, she thinks about disappearing, about hiding, and she collects these rocks that she, you know, she fantasizes about maybe one day when I build a home, these rocks will be the skirt around the hearth in the house I'm going to build one day. But she's never tried to build that house. She's just, she can't really imagine a future. And so I think even her ability to like speculate on a future um, is um, an element of her maybe letting go or coming to terms with, you know, her, her past self a little bit. Absolutely. And um, we mentioned at the outset that you are continuing and you have a next book, The Last Beekeeper. It turns out that um, due to all these seismic shifts, it it will actually be delayed um, in its release. But it's about, I mean, I, I feel as though I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I am capable of reading too much into things, but I do feel as though like the last beekeeper, it conjures hives, right? And the beekeepers (laughs) and hives, they're our home. Like this is our home. Earth is our home. And we're the keeper of it. And and then it's the last beekeeper. And so you sort of gasp um, a little bit. Um, you know, we only have a minute to go before we, we have to close, but um, any other message there about the next book and what you think people should look for? Well, I'm glad you're intrigued by the title. Um, I love the title. Uh, so it is it's set in the very near future. I personally keep bees, so this is something that's very personal to me, and I've lost a lot of bees, so it was inspired by the death of some of my bee colonies, but the um, it's basically about uh, the relationship between a father and a daughter. The father is one of the last beekeepers in this near future world that I've set up. And I introduce an element, which I'm not going to tell you about, that hastens the collapse of our pollinators. And it's about the relationship of these two people that is disintegrating as the bees die. And is there a chance for them to repair their relationship? And can we repair this world? Kind of a, it's a, that's the teaser I'll leave you with. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued. I'm all in for sure. I, I also, I also, um, I also commend you on um, leaving the bear scene in to for waiting for the night <laughs> song because the bear scene was easily one of my favorite and most endearing. Um, there is a sense that these animals that we're talking about do have spirits and they inhabit um, those spirits and we share them in some ways and in certain moments. So I'm very grateful that you did that. And I'm very glad of the fact that you joined us today, Julie Carrick Dalton, author of Waiting for the Night Song. Uh, I wondered to um, let people know that you're on Twitter, Julie, C-A-R-D-A-L-T. Your website is juliecarrickdalton.com and you're on Instagram, Julie C. Dalton. Thanks, Julie, for being with us. And thanks to our engineers. Thank you. I'm so glad. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and give your positive energy to this world. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 